I want to share a philosophy with you if I could. My philosophy is this, that anytime, anytime that we can begin a, a teaching with this picture, it's a win, all right? Anytime we can begin with Mike Tyson, it, it is a win. Now, uh, the reason why I'm showing you a picture of Mike Tyson is because uh, Mike Tyson um, taught a lot on the issue of intimidation. Uh, if you look up Mike Tyson and intimidation on YouTube, Google, you're going to find a lot of resources, okay? A lot of encouragement for you. Uh, his quote, though, about intimidation, I think really, really is telltale. Here's what Tyson says about intimidation. I don't try to intimidate anyone before a fight. That's nonsense. I intimidate people by hitting them, okay? And, uh, and, and that, that probably was true, okay? Um, I, I learned about intimidation in my junior year of high school. I've shared this story with, uh, with you before, but it's been a while, and it's one of my favorites. So uh, in high school, uh, my junior season, I played a defensive back, safety, okay, on a defense that was, uh, to say unbelievable, it would be an understatement. In fact, I want to show you how unbelievable the defense was. Here was, our, here was our scores from my junior year. Look at the opponent's score. We gave up three touchdowns all year, okay, and we blocked all three extra points, okay. So, I mean, as you can see, it was a crazy season. I played safety that year, had a ton of interceptions because quarterbacks were just scared. Uh, they were just like throwing balls up in the air, and I just got to sit back and pick them off. It was a whole lot of fun. Uh, this is a true story, okay? Six of the 11 starters on, on that defense went on to go to prison at some point in the next three to four years. It's a true story. These were mean dudes. Mean dudes. Thankfully, they were my friends, okay? Now... That season, we, we got the nickname Monsters of the Mid-State because uh, Mid-State was our conference. And what would happen is inevitably the ambulance would be on the field every single game carrying the limp and wounded of the other team off. True story. And the way that we would enter the field, okay, I know, John, I, man, I know this gets you kind of some of you football players, it gets you fired up. The way we would enter the stadium, whether we were playing at home or whether we were somewhere away, is starting at our locker room, seven across, we would hold hands and just walk. Like, there was no running involved. It was like this very, very slow walk. You know, everyone was kind of sticking their chest out a little bit, right? I had, I had like, innies for pecs, so, I, you know, I was, like, trying to do my best. And, and, and we, would just, we would just walk. And this is true. Like, like, by the third or fourth game, I mean, you could see teams starting to cower, okay? Because they knew, A, there was a great chance one, two, three of them were going to end up in the hospital, and B, there was almost no chance they were going to score. It, it, was, it was very, very intimidating and, quite honestly, in my pride, very, very fun. Okay? Now, before we say one more thing on the issue, I want to I define it. Okay? Next slide. Here's Webster's. Intimidate means this, to make someone afraid. To make someone afraid. All of us at one point or another, and probably even recently have been intimidated. So let me ask the question this way. Next slide. What intimidates you? What makes you afraid of something else? Uh, next slide. How, how about this? Are there any people that intimidate you? 
Are there any people that you get around and they just evoke fear in you because of how they talk, because of what they do, because of how muscular they are, because, because of how painful some of their words have been? Because of uh, the past that you have with them? Like, are, are there any people that when they start walking your way, you're like, I don't think so, right? Like, I'd rather go in the corner by myself than ever interact or talk with you. Next slide, how about this question? Are there any situations that, Im- uh, the, that intimidate you? Heights, for instance, okay? Right? Are, are there any kind of like roller coasters or social settings? How about public speaking? Okay, does public speaking intimidate any of you guys by raise of hand? And you're, you're like, I'm not raising my hand because I know he's going to invite me up there. You're exactly right. Thank you. Thank you. Well played. Well played. All right. Now, I want to ask one final question, and this is certainly going to drive our evening. How about this? Next slide. Are there any scriptures that intimidate you? Are there any passages as you're studying the Bible and you get to them and you want to run in fear? Well, guess what, my friends? Tonight is one of mine, okay? Tonight's one of mine. Some of you have been reading ahead. You know what's coming tonight. And if, if, you're, if you're not, if you haven't been reading ahead, as we get into this, you're going to see just how intimidating this passage is. I, I want to go as far as to say, honestly, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 14 has been difficult. As we've been wrestling with spiritual gifts and prophecy and speaking in tongues. The blessing, though, of journeying verse by verse is even when you come to intimidating passages... We have to go for it. And so tonight I'm inviting you to go for it with me. We're going to walk through this, teach through this, be super curious about this, and in the end give God a whole bunch of glory. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 14. Tonight we end the chapter 14. Next week begins a five-week journey through the resurrection. Okay, some of you are like, praise the Lord, finally, okay? We've made it through chapter 14. We learned a lot. Next week, the resurrection. So here we go. Let's start where we ended off in verse 33 of uh, chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians. We saw a part A last week. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And I told you last week, God is not a God of confusion because he's not confused. He's never having to, uh, to put the, uh, connect the dots. He's never having to put the puzzle together. He gets it. He understands. And now Paul goes on to say this in 33b, as in all the churches of the saints, comma. The, the reason why we ended at 33a last week is because I think 33b best goes with the verses that come. In other words, to me, it makes no sense For verse 33 to be one verse, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, period, as in all the churches of the saints. Isn't that a little confusing, right? Like, you've just talked about confusing, and now you lumped a confusing verse together. Makes no sense, okay? So, as in all the churches of the saints, hi, 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 verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches. Okay, all right. I'm serious. Listen, listen. When we chose 1 Corinthians, I knew this was coming. I knew it. Right? But we're like, man, it feels so far off. And then we got in like chapter 3. I'm like, chapter 14 is coming, guys. 
And then we got to like chapter 10, and I'm like waking up at night with sweats, you know? Okay. But here we are. As in all the churches, the women should keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to, what's the word there? To speak. This is really easy. But should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right. Here's why this is dangerous. The temptation for communicators, I'll be specific, the temptation for me in this moment is to figure out some nice phrases that kind of bask some of the truth and and get us by it. Oh, hey, look, you know, one, two, skip a few, verse 30, you know, and oh, oh, look, verse 40, right? Like, that's the temptation, right? Like, blah, 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 shma, 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 and we're on our way, right? Like, that's the temptation, I hope, though, in you, there is this longing because we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, right? That the Bible is inerrant. So if the Bible is, and not just 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about the resurrection or 1 Corinthians 13 that talks about love, if the whole word is inerrant, then I hope and pray that you long, instead of coming to passages like this and vomiting in your mouth, that instead you desire to understand what this verse is communicating about the Lord Jesus and its implications to us, right? Like, I hope so. I hope you're not longing for some cultural relativism and, you know, and for me to kind of mask the truth. That said, I approach this with fear and trembling. Here's why. Because every single female in this body of Christ and everywhere in the world is cherished and loved and cared for by a good, holy, and righteous God. And I hope and pray that this body not only bears that image of what Christ has done for his daughters, but embraces it to the fullest extent. So first of all, females, let me say, we have a deep care for you here. Love you so much. And want now to answer three questions about this passage that I think are going to bring some clarity, okay? Because some of you are already like looking up the bumper sticker, some of you dudes, okay? You're like, oh, honey, we should get this for our car. Listen, pause for a second. Pause for a second. Let's ask three questions. I've highlighted them in yellow, okay? First, what is Paul not saying? That's going to be a good question, right? Number two, what is Paul saying? And number three, what in the world does this mean for us? Okay. So let's start with question number one. What what is Paul not saying? Well, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. Obviously, we don't believe that every woman should enter the community gathering with a muzzle. Obviously, we don't believe that. Because how many of you women have talked tonight at some point? Some of you are like, no. What? You're like, Mark, I was just preparing my heart for the word. Okay, well. Come on, every single woman in this room, right? Come on, raise your hand like you've talked. And there was not a sign at the door that said, if you're a female, okay, you need to shut your yapper, okay? Like, 
That sign was not there. So obviously we believe that in the gathering of the body of Christ, women have a voice. So obviously Paul is not saying that somehow in the corporate gathering, which we've seen there's a lot of confusion in the corporate gathering in Corinth. There's a lot of misuse of spiritual gifts, a lot of use of gifts at the same time, which is causing confusion. He's obviously not saying that women in the whole gathering must be silent. There, 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 there must be something else then that he is saying. Well, well, that is furthered by what he just said a few chapters ago. Here's what 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 said. Look at this. But I want you to understand, remember this in verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. We talked through all the implications of this, verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, leave the head covering piece, which we talked through already, and just grasp onto Paul can't be contradicting himself. He just said that it was okay for a woman to pray and prophesy. And so here, he must not mean that, listen, you come in the gathering and you just, it's no talking, no chatter, no fellowship, no koinonia, you just sit there. That, that can't be what he's saying. He wouldn't contradict himself. Okay. So then, uh, next, uh, next slide. So he is not saying that women in the corporate gathering have no voice. Next question, the very pertinent question, is what is Paul saying then? In ancient synagogues, often what would happen is you would have a sixth grade dance. You would have girls on one side and guys on the other, okay? Right, sixth grade dance, have you been there? Okay, that's what would happen, right? You come in, you're a guy, you go over here, you're a girl, you go over there. So in ancient synagogues, very, very often, gals would sit on one side, males would sit on the other. Okay. We do not have precise evidence that this was for sure the case in Corinth. And trust me, guys, I have read so, so, so much on these two verses, okay? So hang with me. And there's certainly a lot of theories. I'm putting the one out to you that I believe to be the most plausible. So you have females on one side and you have males on the other, more than likely. They've taken some of the roots of the Jewish synagogues and they found their way to Corinth. And what's happening is someone then begins to prophesy. We just saw the problem. People are standing up speaking in tongues in public. Paul's giving framework for when someone can speak in tongues and when someone can't. People are doing it in a very confusing fashion. Well, apparently what's happening at least in the way that I want to propose it to you, is that someone stands up to prophesy, to to share some truth that they believe is from God. The Spirit has stirred them. They stand up and they then begin to share. Okay, Uh, they, They didn't have, you know, the Scripture as we have it in its precise form now. And so then what I imagine happening is that some of the women, some of the wives, which are sitting maybe collectively, hear some of this proposed truth, and then what's happening is they're trying to figure out if their husband believes it, if it's true. Remember, they're, they're supposed to weigh in to make sure that it's true. They're trying to figure out if their husband believes it. They're, they're also trying to figure out if they believe it. So, so maybe one of the ways this is happening is women are standing up and creating confusion. 
hey, Billy, do we believe that? You know, like, and Billy, probably not an ancient Jewish name, but work with me, right? Like, and, and so what you have happening now is speaking in tongues, prophesying, women asking questions. And the reason why I'm proposing it to you that way, because Paul indicates that, hey, instead, ask your question of your husband at home. So there's some indication that some follow-up is needed. Well, why would he bring in the husband at that point outside of some direction of his role in the marriage other than to say there must be some part of the body of Christ that's getting confused by some of the banter that's happening? Now, again, there are some other theories, I believe several of which are are very, very um, discombobulated themselves. Uh, This is a true story. I would say... A liberal sect believes that these verses were added later. Okay? That theory is out there. Right? That like you had somebody write in and it wasn't Pauline. It wasn't Pauline authorship. You have someone kind of etch it in. Oh, hey, uh, the women need to be silent up, up in there. Right? And, and then somehow it was added to the canon. I don't believe that. We've been in the context of a public gathering of the body of Christ that is getting confusing. And so instead, what Paul says is, listen, in verse 35, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Again, is this a culturally popular teaching? No. Does this say, though, that that women can't pray or prophesy? No. Does this say that, that women don't have a prominent role in the church? No, because they do. Uh, Does this say that that somehow women take a backseat to men? No, 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 they do not. Women are, with men, co-laborers, co-equals, serving the Lord in their specific roles that God has given. Now, the thing that's been burdened on my heart from this text is question number three, okay? Um, Next slide. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for, like, what, what are we to take from this? Because generally, we don't have, you know, wives or women standing up shouting out questions of their husbands in the corporate gathering, right? Like, it doesn't happen. Maybe, maybe it will start, I don't know, tonight, right? Like, this is messed up, you know? Like, I don't know, right? Like, but what are we to do with this? I read this over, and listen, I'm serious. I probably read these two verses, like, 535 times, Okay. Over and over and over. And the one thing that kept impacting my heart from these verses on its implications for us was this passage. Wives, submit to your own husbands, ask to the Lord. Not a rule of chauvinism. Not some sort of judgment on women being inferior. But having a different role. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Beautiful language, verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, verse 25, our key verse. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, as uh, disdaining as verse uh, 33, 34, and 35 seem, how about the beauty in it? How about the beauty of a wife and a husband going back to talk about Jesus? 
How about the beautiful thought of wives and husbands finding themselves in the car ride home from a night like tonight talking about Jesus? You see, what the, what the verse implies is, listen, ask your husband at home, which implies that there is some beautiful Christ-centered conversation that's going on between husband and wife. That they're fueling one another because they're talking about the Lord. The, the wife is coming home and saying, hey, husband, please share with me your thoughts on this prophecy that was shared in their day. In our context, share with me the, the thoughts that you have on Ephesians 5. I just, I want to be honest with you, some of the most beautiful, hot, I'll even say, moments with my wife Heidi are when we're talking theology. When she's discipling someone and she wants to know about biblical covenant or she wants my opinion on spiritual gifts. And I, I get the chance to share with her. And, and again, like some of you think, uh, I'm sure at home you're a little bit calm. Oh no, I get fired up, okay? Because we start talking about the Lord and, and, and I see my wife interested in growing in that way. Now, we, own, we open a whole new gamut of conversations now. And I want to walk through several of them. Number one, to you dudes, that's one of the most intimidating things you could ever imagine. Whoa, 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 Marks. Dude, you need to tone it down a little bit because the last thing I want tonight is my wife coming home and asking me my opinion on biblical spiritual gifts. Like, Mark, like, show the Mike Tyson picture again, right? Like, let's divert. Man, it's unbelievably intimidating. Uh, in part of the beautiful piece of your role, some of you have cowered under the amazing gifts of your wife. It's not to discredit the gifts or the passions of your wife. In fact, your role as your husband, or as her husband, is to bring out her gifts. It's to help her flourish. My calling in my marriage is to help Heidi, to the fullest extent, embrace the calling that God has on her and celebrate her, and pray for her, and on bent knees serve her. That is my beautiful calling in Christ. But what happens in some of you dudes is you marry a passionate, scripturally understood, strong female. And instead of pursuing the Lord and becoming a theologian who's passionate about Christ yourself, you cower underneath her. When biblically, as we see over and over and over, the husband is in the, in the relationship, in the marriage, the leader. That leadership is a role of service. It's a role of humility and not chauvinism and never abuse. Amen? Never abuse. Never abuse. Always following as the Lord served and loved the church. And how did the church treat her sometimes? Uh, treat him sometimes? Like sometimes there's contention. Sometimes there's, there's strife. But first, men, I think you find some of you a very intimidating piece on becoming the lead theologian, Christ-centered teacher in your home. But you know what? Your kids, your kids will miss out on one of the greatest opportunities, fathers in the room, that you have. And that is to teach your kids the Bible. 
The Bible, that's right. Not pictures. Pictures are great for additives. Some of you still, 34 years old, your Bible has pictures in it, okay? It, it's time to upgrade, okay? It's time to upgrade. One of the greatest opportunities you have is to open up your word, and I have to continually grow in this and teach your children the scripture, not slamming down their throat legalism, but instead teaching them the freedom that comes in Christ. That's the beautiful image I'm seeing in this passage. It's easy to see some sort of, you know, discrediting picture to women, but why don't we pull back from that, step back and see the overall context and say, what a beautiful picture in the home. Now, for some of you who aren't married, for some of you who are single, you're like, whoa, settle down, man, all this married talk, good, I'm out of here. Hold on a second. We can never say enough here the importance of seeking the Lord on who it is that you would, in fact, marry. Some of you will be called to a life of singleness. And for you, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, that is a joy and an honor. It doesn't feel like it at times, but you will be freed in community to go back and wrestle through some of these same theological Christ-centered things we're talking about. But for those of you dudes that are yet to be married, now is your time. You're 17, 18, 19 years old. If God provides a spouse, you're preparing to become, listen, the pastor of your home. The man who bends the knee before his kids. The man who opens the Bible and daily proclaims that we need Jesus, not daddy. You're preparing yourself now for that men, young men. And listen, I understand all kinds of areas of recreation have their place, but if you spend uh, 30, 40, 50 hours a week playing FIFA and Halo, you are discrediting the power of God's word in your life. Now for you females who are waiting for a dude, and you, and you go up to him and you start building this relationship and he asks you out and he, he even takes you to Prasino, right? Street St. Charles. And then you go to Froyo. I mean, he's throwing it down. He spent 50 bucks, okay? So you can tell he's not just got an allowance, okay? Right? And then you finally start getting in some, some depth of conversation. And, and, and you, you find yourself initiating the conversation about God's word, which, as for me and my house, if God's word is not talked about on date number one, forget it. You're like, Mark, that's kind of hardcore. Why? The whole thing's going to be Christ-centric. Right? And so if in your pursuit then you're like, so hey, what, what have you been learning about God's word? And you can see the man kind of fumbling around. Well, you know, like, and he like looks at his phone real quick. Oh, this one time I saw this poster at a football game and it said John 3.16 on it. And it was awesome. Oh, cool, yeah. What, what did you get out of John 3.16? Yeah, you know, it's like, it's from John and there's like 16 things in it, right? No, no, okay, right? So females, single females waiting on a spouse, your desire is to have the kind of man that every single day, every single night, you're able to go home and talk about Jesus. Hey, honey, here's what I'm learning today. Tell me more about what you're learning. 
Here's the ways that I'm being stirred. And listen, I have a ton of room of growth in this. I long to continue to grow in this. Men, join me in this growth. But, but women, listen, I'm telling you, please be patient for that kind of man. Just because he has a leather bound and not just the Bible on his phone, please don't give him too much grace in that moment. You're looking for a spouse. You're looking for a co-laborer, women in the room. Not someone who has learned how to say nice, pleasant phrases at the right time. Can I please get somebody to say amen with me right? Like, like this, this is the reality. And so again, I think many people have gotten tripped up. Oh my goodness, women need, hold on a second. Obviously, there were some issues in Corinth that Paul has been working through, but I think the principle still applies. The husband is the leader of the home. We will not shy away from that, but that leadership role is serving and humility, period. Never chauvinism, never abuse. The power then of that home that's centered on pursuing Christ together is so intimidating I'm going to say for just about all of us, and that's why I want to pause now just to pray over us because some of you dudes, some of you gals right now, you're like, Mark, we're far from that, and I don't even know what's next. Let's just pray. Let's pray. I don't want us to run in fear of it. I don't, listen, I don't want some of you men now just to be heaped on with condemnation. The scripture says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And women, listen, for for some of you who, uh, who are married to men who are falling short, Okay, the first, the first question in the car, please, please don't let it be, hey, were you listening tonight? You know? Did you hear that? We better be talking about Jesus tonight up in this house. No, like, right? Like, grab, grab the hand of your husband and plead for him because this is a very, very difficult task. So, Father, I ask even right now, God, as we're, we're weighing and, and wrestling with these heavy things, that you would grow our marriages. God, for those who are single and waiting, I pray, God, that you would encourage them, continue, God, to to fuel your word in their hearts. I pray that they would not shy back from from being strong, Christ-centered, biblically literate men and women of you. God, grow us all. I pray for strength in discipling relationships that we would nurture one another and build one another up. God, for those who are scared, who are intimidated, who right now are feeling condemnation, I pray against it. Instead, I pray that grace would abound in spite of our failures. Wash us clean from our past. Give us a renewed opportunity tonight to lead our homes, to walk in light of who you are. God, please do this. We pray in your great name. Amen. Amen. So when Paul says at the end of verse 35... That it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. In that time, there was a clear issue where women were superseding the role of their husband and even, I'll go as far as to say, creating confusion in the body of Christ. Paul is speaking against it. That's why he says this in verse 36. He knows that they're going to be struggling with this. Or was it from you? That the word of God came. Don't you love that? Or are you the only ones it has reached? In other words, there's this, there's a sense, listen, I know this is going to be tough. I know this is going to be heavy. But listen, like, the, the word isn't coming from you. In fact, he says this in verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet 
or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a, what's the word? Are a command of the Lord. And we know from 1 John that the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Summarizing all of chapter 14, putting a punch on the verses that this comes before. He's saying, listen, listen, this is God's word. This isn't Paul's opinion. And I know, just like you and I, Corinth had to hear that. Why? Because this is hard stuff. It's hard in our culture to celebrate the biblical roles of a man and a woman in a marriage. It's hard. It's hard. So hard. But in Christ, so unbelievably beautiful. So unbelievably beautiful. So we end the chapter with a summary. Verse 39 and 40. Here we go. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's a good summary. We desire prophecy. Why? Because it builds up. We saw that. We desire prophecy even more so than speaking in tongues because it's intelligible. But he also says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. When it is a gift of the Spirit and not a conjured up man-made replication, when it is a gift, then display the glory of the gift giver in it. And he ends with this in verse 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. And then somehow he launches from that to teaching on the resurrection. (laughs) I mean, it's awesome, right? Listen, let's summarize the entire chapter 14 in four statements. Verse 1 began this way. Love is to be pursued. Do you guys remember chapter 13? Yes, you do, because you've been to a wedding. You know it. The spiritual gifts do not supersede love. The whole chapter 14, which is all about spiritual gifts, is love. Pursue love. Love comes before the essence of and the power of spiritual gifts. Love is to be pursued, not sat back on. Number two, let's say this in summary. Spiritual gifts are to be used, please see this, to glorify God while simultaneously building up the church. Glorify God, the gift giver, not the gifts. We're not going to glorify the gifts, right? We're going to exalt Christ, the gift giver. And we're going to do so in a way that builds up the church, that encourages the church. That shows the church tremendous, tremendous glory of God in our lives. Number three, we saw this, summary from chapter 14. The unbeliever must be considered in the use of spiritual gifts. You guys saw this, right? The unbeliever comes in the room. Everybody be speaking in tongues. Nobody be interpreting. We have chaos on our hands. And the non-believer in the room is like, what in the world? Right. They're looking around for the Kool-Aid. They're wondering where the sacrificial children are. Like they're, right? True story. In, In pagan culture, sacrificing children was a practice. So now all of a sudden Christianity and following Christ is getting put in the same vein as some of these pagan religions. So Paul makes very, very clear, listen, spiritual gifts cannot, cannot get in the way of a non-believer. The non-believer, the unbeliever must be considered. 
must be thought of. And finally, number four, this is beautiful, beautiful stuff. There is to be order in the use of spiritual gifts when the church is gathered. There is order. There's structure. There's interpretation needed. There's two or three that can speak. Now, I step back from the entire chapter 14 and a difficult text tonight. And I want to make one thing clear. Next slide. I want to say it this way. Our intimidation by the mystery of God's work in spiritual gifts causes us to forget his invitation. I have seen spiritual gifts cause more contention in the body of Christ and texts like tonight cause more division in the body of Christ that we get so intimidated by studying it, practicing it, pursuing it, that instead we run away from it and in doing so forget the invitation of God. Now, it's possible like me, because this is the first time I've ever, ever understood it this way. Again, when I get intimidated, intimidation by definition is we run from. It causes fear in us. Many of you are unbelievably fearful of following passages like, like chapter 14. You're like, whoa, 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 settle down. The Holy Spirit, let's, just, let's, let's hang with Jesus, okay? Jesus is good. Jesus resurrected. Let's leave the Spirit, you know, for this sect of people over here. No! Jesus said in the end of the Gospel of John, I need to go so the Helper can come. Like, the Holy Spirit is a gift, my friends. So I want to take one step further and say this. Next slide. God is either intimidating or inviting to you. That's it. This is a very, very difficult thing to say. Because right now as it stands, some of you are either seeing the open hand of a good father that's inviting you to come nearer. Or, you're so intimidated by his word, so intimidated by his commands, so intimidated by his calling, so intimidated by his grandeur, and on and on and on, that instead of receiving the open hand of invitation to come nearer, you are running away because you're scared if you get too close it will cost too much God is very intimidating for some of you and I know what some of you are thinking you're like but Mark aren't we supposed to fear the Lord oh yes there is a beautiful fear of God but it's as we draw nearer to him why Because the nearer we are, the more we are in awe. The more we learn, the more we find ourselves marveling. The more we see his work, the more we find ourselves worshiping. And that is where the fear of God is. It's found in seeing who God is and what God is doing all of the time. But some of us are so intimidated. 
by passages like chapter 14, by the commands of Christ, by disciple making, by loving our enemies, by embracing the call to deny ourselves that instead you're finding yourselves running away. And yet there is beautiful invitation. Next slide. What if this was so true? Abide in me and I in you. What if you heard this invitation tonight? Let me make sure you understand this. This is in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, straight out of the mouth of Jesus, saying, abide in me. You are invited through my death and resurrection into me. You're invited into nearness with my Father. You're invited into nearness of love and grace and forgiveness. You are invited in. Can I ask you this right now, my friends? Does your life show right now that you are answering the invitation? You are being invited by a lot of things, aren't you? Come on. There's a lot of invitations being sent out. There's a lot of possible, hey, your attention needs to be over here. The constant invitation to be distracted. The constant invitation to follow the world. The constant invitation to eat from the, from the pools of lust all around us. This is the invitation all around us. And what I found is the more intimidated I am by the calling of God and the character of God, the farther I run from him and the more these other invitations seem interesting. the more I find myself saying, there's only one invitation that I want. There's only one invitation I need. It's not just that I cherish, abide in me and I in you. It's that I know there is no other way to live than by seeing a Savior's hand saying, come, come. I love you. I'm gracious to you. I know there's a lot of seemingly confusing things out there, but I'm not confused. I know there's a lot of intimidating things about following me, but listen, you don't understand. I give you nearness to me, and then I give you my spirit to follow me. The rest of this passage goes on to say this. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless You abide in me. You see, if intimidation causes fear, if it causes you to run away, then the fruit is verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. Let's say this together. Let's read this in together. Come on. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You run from chapters like 1 Corinthians 14. From making disciples, from leading your home, from embracing your call, from pursuing your neighbor, from caring for the widows, from opening up your wallet and generosity to those around you, and on and on and on. You run from those things, you know what? You are proving that apart from him you can do nothing. But when you draw near to him, When you're not intimidated, but you see the clear invitation that is saying, you can be my kid. You don't have to turn your back anymore. Listen, you come, you follow me. There is an open invitation to you to be my child. I open up my home. 
I open up all love, all grace. You'll never, you'll never, ever be in want ever again. For an eternity is the promise of a good father. And so I get to the end of chapter 14. And instead of letting the summary of spiritual gifts drown me in the gifts, I long tonight to say, what about the giver? What about the giver? What about the inviter? I know there's some non-believers that are here, and again, I, I say this, I feel like every week, thank you. Thank you for coming. I hope and pray you felt welcomed. I hope and pray that you've been encouraged. But let me make sure you understand one thing. The invitation for you to follow Christ and receive his grace and mercy is open to you right now. Is it possible that he's inviting you right now to come and follow him in all of the intimidation that's been built up because you think that following Christ means perfection and a list of rules and some sort of religious system? Let me take the noose off of that half-hearted way of thinking and encourage you with this. There is freedom in Christ. There is grace in Christ. There is love in Christ, and then we get the joy of following him in a death like his and a life like his. He provides a way out of ourselves so that we can follow him. So for some of you tonight, right now, call on his name. The invitation is there. The scripture says, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And this meal that we're getting ready to celebrate is a meal for believers. And so if tonight you're like, man, we we made it through this crazy chapter and we still into Jesus. That's what's going to happen here every week. You're like, why have I been so intimidated? It's about Jesus. Then listen, maybe tonight you're a believer for the first time, a follower of Christ. Come to this table. Join in at this altar. It is for followers. And tonight, my friends, as we break the bread and remember the power of the broken body of Christ, as we share in this meal and as we pull a piece of that bread off and dip it in the cup tonight, we get the chance to say, apart from him, we can do nothing. But with him, the glory of God. With him, all mercy. With him, all grace. With him, an invitation that says, come. In another place in scripture, Jesus says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. We're either intimidated or invited. And my prayer right now is that this table would find tons of you without condemnation who are freed again from the yoke of slavery as you welcome in the voice of a king. So, Father, do that work in us tonight. Draw those, God, tonight nearer who have felt and who have been very far. For the husbands who have struggled and are battling, not growing, not leading, God, I pray against condemnation and for grace. Help them take this meal tonight in freedom. For my dear sisters who have felt underutilized in the body, instead I pray that they would feel cherished and loved and cared for and 
God, continue to give them a a great heart and passion for using their gifts in the body. God, please uh, free us together tonight. God, I pray tonight that for those that have been denying your invitation for years, instead, tonight they would, great, they would find a great a humility and gratitude in hearing clearly from you. So God, open up this table tonight to those who believe in you. And, and God, I pray that you would draw us near. Thank you, Father, that we can abide in you. Church, respond.